Well, good morning. It is an honor and a privilege to stand up here this morning and open God's word with you. I'm Andrew Lambert, pastor here, one of the pastors here at uh, Flagstaff Christian Fellowship. Uh, you could start flipping in your Bible to Isaiah 55. We will um, spend our time there this morning. If you need a Bible, would you just raise your hand up uh, nice and high? Caleb will help you get one. Uh, into your hands. Thank you. Thank you for helping with that. I want to take pastoral privilege here just to make a couple comments before we dive in. Uh, the first comment is, I would encourage you brothers and sisters to plan on being in uh, the fireside room next Sunday at 11 a.m. where we will hear from Martha. Martha did a little neighborhood outreach. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about that and how that went down. And also from Nessa, she'll be talking about and introducing us to Vision Beyond Borders, who she links up with and goes on short-term mission trips with frequently. So it's good to see you back here, sister. Uh, so think about that and support them and hear what they are doing uh, both locally and far away. The second thing I want to do, and Daniel, I need your help with this, is to bring up a slide that shows our newest covenantal members. And I want to read their names, uh, and I would ask that as I read their names, if they're here, they would stand up. Now, I won't ask you to talk. I won't embarrass you. I just want you to see their faces and make a point of welcoming them. So Alan and Anna White, Bob and Joanne Shute, Gary and Keely, sorry, I almost said it wrong, Keely Schley, maybe they come to second service, Porter and Michelle Cochran, Tanya Meyer, Thomas Howell, and Amy Augustine. Where is she? So happy, please have a seat, so happy to have them as members here, covenant members of Flagstaff Christian Fellowship. So hopefully you're open to Isaiah chapter 55, and as you turn there, as you get situated in your Bible and get comfortable in your seat, I want to share a few pertinent facts with you about Isaiah. First of all, Isaiah's name means Jehovah saves. What a great name for an Old Testament prophet, right? The second thing you need to know is that Isaiah is called by God as an Old Testament prophet to the nations of Israel. He served for about 40 years, and that's a long time through which, during all of that time, he had a message that went something like this. Here's a flyover banner for, for the book of Isaiah, judgment for your rebellion and hope for your future. So Israel is promised by God judgment for their sin, but also hope for their future. Now, the entire nation of Israel is under the heavy hand of God's judgment. First, God judges their wickedness and their sinfulness by addressing the kings, and he splits the nation of Israel into two different nations. Many of you are familiar with that. There's a north and a south. They take on the names in the north of Israel, so they hold that name, and in the south kingdom, the southern kingdom, they adopt the name of Judah in the, in the text of our Bibles. This results in an ongoing civil war, so that's part of the judgment that God does to these sinful people. But second, he uses other nations to judge them. And you're, you're kind of familiar with this. You're vaguely familiar with the idea that uh, he's going to use Assyria, he's going to use Babylon, he's going to judge the northern kingdom, and he will judge the southern kingdom. So that's kind of what we're stepping into this morning as, as a way of context. The thing I want you to kind of grasp right out front is their whole national identity and existence is in chaos. Their, their world is it's dark, it's threatening, it's, it's pressing in on them, and, and they need God's reassurance for their nation. 
And just like Israel, we are often on the verge of hopelessness. We often feel the press of our dark and chaotic world shoving in, pressing in on us. And we need God's reassurance that comes to us through Isaiah chapter 55. So how does an ancient prophet like Isaiah help us today in 2022 place our trust and confidence in God? Well, I want to show you three really magnificent, fabulous reasons that you can trust and put all your confidence in God despite all the chaos and all the darkness and all the evil in our world. You can place your confidence in God because of his magnificent faithfulness, his magnificent compassion, and his magnificent purposes. So we are going to work through there. That's our roadmap today. God's faithfulness, his compassion, and his purposes. Now, when we are done here today, you will have, if you listen closely, if you engage with God's text, you will have three monumental reasons to put your confidence in God. So let's pray, and then let's look at chapter 55. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we come before you as a body of believers with your spirit here, that your word would indeed speak to us. That, Father, through an ancient text like that given to us by Isaiah, we know your word still speaks. And will you show us things that are marvelous in your word? Will you open our eyes to the wonders that you are and that you have in your word? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we launch into this chapter, <laughs> I find it kind of interesting that Isaiah uses a parable about food. We have friends here. Well, they're not actually here today, but we have friends here at Flagstaff Christian Fellowship who, who have gone out to very nice restaurants. They've sliced into their very nice-looking steak. They've taken a few bites. They looked at each other, and they realized they, they should have stayed at home and cooked for themselves. Seriously, between the two of them, they could put together a better meal than any of our finest restaurants, really in the nation probably. Have you ever had a similar experience where you go to a restaurant or a buffet, maybe you've gone to an all-inclusive resort where there's food everywhere, or, or in my case, a cruise ship and there's food everywhere, and your appetite's huge, your expectations are high, but the reality is not very satisfying. Food is kind of fickle like that. You anticipate something that will satisfy you, and then it doesn't. And so that's kind of a picture of a parable as we jump into verses 1 and 2 in Isaiah chapter 5, and you'll hear this kind of idea. These two verses set the stage for the rest of the chapter. They are a summons, a call to return to God, but they're built in a parable. So let's read verses 1 and 2 together. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Remember, we've got a parable here. The, the food, water, milk, and wine, they're metaphors or pictures, if I could say it that way, of the deepest longing of the heart. But what do they picture and what do they represent? Well, I want you to, for a moment, put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite who's, who's in a place that has been, well, it's a pretty tre tremendously awful place, right? They've been conquered and deported out of their land. They've seen incredible cruelty. They've lost their identity. So if you're in their shoes, you've lost your identity in a foreign land. And these words, these metaphors, they represent a longing for the days when all was right and all was well in their world. 
a longing for the days when Israel lived with God's favor, when they had a land that was flowing with milk and honey, when they had a temple they could worship in, when they were at peace from all their enemies around them, a time when the blessings of God were seen and heard and felt everywhere. But they are not in that place. They are in a strange land, and none of that is true anymore. They're in dire straits. They're suffering. They're exiled. They're captives. Let's sum it up. It's a mess. God calls them back to himself with his mouth-watering picture of goodness that they can never pay for or achieve on their own efforts or by their own efforts. It seems really unbelievable, right? After all, it looks as if God has abandoned them. And the question becomes, can the people of Israel count on God to come and save them and make things right? That question hits home today. Can we count on God to come and save us and make things right? Should we put our confidence in God? Can we believe him? Well, I'm just going to submit to you that it doesn't matter how dark, chaotic, and messy our world gets. We have three tremendous reasons to put our confidence in God today. And the first one is this. You can place your confidence in God because of his faithfulness. His faithfulness. In verse 1 and 2, there's this summon, this call to come and listen and to eat. But now in verse 3, we are told to listen closely, to actually hear so that, your, so that your soul may live. Don't miss that phrase. It's key. A lot hinges on it. So that your soul may live. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Let's read them together. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now let me just cut straight to the point about God's faithfulness in this passage so that you don't miss it. God's faithfulness is seen in making an everlasting covenant because of his steadfast and sure love. Now to really appreciate that, we are going to have to unpack verse 3 just a little bit. In the next 90 seconds, next two minutes might be the most technical part here, but there are several ways that this verse can be interpreted, and specifically those last phrases. There are some scholars who say that the phrase, watch me here, my steadfast love, my steadfast sure love for David is equivalent to the everlasting covenant. It's as if there's an equal sign and one means the other. They're synonymous. Okay, that's possible. Another way, though, on the other hand, is the two phrases could be complementary. One builds off of the other. For instance, in the Net Bible, and we'll just pop this up on the screen, it says, I will make an unconditional covenantal promise to you just like the reliable covenantal promises I made to David. For easy understanding, I might paraphrase it this way, and maybe we'll pop this up on the screen as well. Because of my, this is my paraphrase, because of my steadfast, faithful love to David, I will fulfill my promises to you by making an everlasting covenant with you. Okay, take a deep breath. Grammar is done. In verses 1 and 2, God says through Isaiah, come, listen, and eat. He paints this picture of returning to God. In verse 3, though, particularly the latter part of verse 3, he says, 
this will happen and your soul can live because God is faithful to make an everlasting covenant. And he's making that covenant because of his loyal and steadfast promises he made to King David. Do you remember what those promises were? Because I'm going to refresh you. God literally promised David that after David died, he would establish David's kingdom forever. It will be everlasting. That is what all of Israel, and by Israel I mean Judah and Israel, all of Israel, big capital I, I guess, all of them are counting on this. God promised David an offspring to sit on David's throne forever, like an eternal dynasty that will never end. We see this in 2 Samuel 7, 16, where it says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Psalm 89 then takes the same idea and says this, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. He sworn to David his servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. These promises will be and have been fulfilled because of God's steadfast and sure love. Now, it's helpful to know that everywhere you turn in the Old Testament, David is lifted up as the best king ever in the history of Israel. He is the one everybody wants back, the pinnacle of their existence in history. When David reigned on the throne, justice and righteousness were largely exemplified. Things were in order. When David finally died, the land was subdued. Israel was at peace with all the enemies around her. That's what 2 Samuel 7 actually tells us. In the process, Israel was called to testify to the surrounding nations of God's greatness. So Israel was God's people. David was their king. He was their commander. And everybody wants somebody like him back. And that's why in verse 4 we see that David is called a witness, a leader, and a commander to the peoples. So how, right? The question should be how. How will God faithfully fulfill his promises to David? We've already seen that through the everlasting covenant, which we call the new covenant. That's what the Old Testament Jeremiah calls it. That's what the New Testament in Hebrews calls it, the new covenant, right? He is the one that will come through an everlasting covenant. God is promising to establish a king like David again, one who is immortal and eternal, a king on the throne who is righteous and just, a king who will defeat all enemies permanently, a king who will give rest to his people eternally, a king who will reassemble the people of God to his great praise and to his great glory. So Isaiah 55 verse 3 speaks of this everlasting covenant while pointing to the one who will be the ultimate leader and commander of God's people. We can understand that verse is referring to the new covenant. We know from the overwhelming evidence and testament of the New Testament that this ultimate leader, commander, and king is Jesus. We also know, if we look and read carefully, that this covenant is not for Israel only. You see, it says in verse 5, you Israel shall call a nation you do not know, and they shall run to you. Well, verse 5 says the nation, and verse 4 says the peoples, and both point to those who are outside of the nation of Israel. So in other words, the Gentiles, those who are not yet part of the kingdom of God, those who are not yet part of the people of God, will be included in the new and everlasting covenant that God will make with and through Israel. 
So yes, God's faithfulness in making an everlasting covenant should stoke and fire our confidence in him. But you may be sitting here wondering, as we go through some of this Old Testament stuff, well, what does that do for me? How do I understand how that would work? What would that look like in my life? You see, our confidence in God skyrockets when we reflect on his track record of faithfulness. A track record that really extends from creation all the way into eternity future. God was faithful all along the way. He was faithful when he made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Israel. He made a covenant with David. And he never, ever failed in any of his promises in any of these covenants. When Israel was unfaithful, God was faithful. He was faithful to David even when David was unfaithful to God. He is faithful now here in the new covenant. So I encourage you, here's the takeaway from this, I encourage you to meditate on God's faithfulness. His faithfulness in all of these covenants, but especially in the new covenant. Think about it. God faithfully, inexorably moves his plan of redemption forward. He uses Israel as a means, as a vehicle to bring the Messiah, our Savior, onto the scene. And through Messiah, he establishes a new and everlasting covenant with an invitation to both Jew and Gentile. That invitation, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is brought to us in the new covenant, grounded in the work of Jesus, God's own son. Jesus' body was given and his blood shed to establish that new covenant. Week after week, we stand up here at the Lord's Supper and we read this verse from Luke. The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The perfect life and obedient death of Jesus became the means, the means of salvation through the new covenant. But the new covenant is also ratified by Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven from where he faithfully, note that word, he faithfully guards and shepherds his elect. Today he is still faithful, ladies and gentlemen. His steadfast love endures. His mercies are new every morning. If you want to know how to increase your confidence in God's faithfulness, well, Lamentations has quite a bit to tell us in three short verses. It, it, it's this idea of I will call to mind. I will call to mind. Lamentations 3 says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. In other words, I will meditate upon God's goodness and faithfulness, and I do have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your, say it with me, faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. These verses tell us how to remember God's faithfulness in our lives. So you can place your confidence in God because of his magnificent faithfulness. Faithfulness to promises which he will never, ever break. That's the first reason. We could put our confidence in God. But there's another reason. And the second reason is this. You can place your absolute confidence in God because of his heart of compassion. His heart of compassion. Read with me verses 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that the Lord may have compassion on him and return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are, higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. 
Can you hear God's heart in verse 7, his deepest concern and care for his people in these verses? Israel is in exile for rebellion. They are under a very severe judgment and punishment for crimes against against God. In fact, in God's eyes, they're like a harlot, like an adulteress who breaks the marriage covenant, entices others to sins, and runs after and attaches herself to anyone and everyone who is willing. That's what Israel is like in God's eyes. They've ran after and attached themselves to everything that is despicable in the eyes of God. Their sin is a mountain. It is immense. It is huge. And yet, despite all that, God says the wicked and the unrighteous can return to the Lord for a full pardon. Wow, praise God. They can seek him and they can find him and he will forgive them. Now, honestly, I I would never do that. And you would never do that. Which is why I think we have verses 8 and 9 right here to remind us that God is not like us. In fact, God is so different than us, he characterizes it as infinite, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Go ahead, get your tape measure out. You can't measure that, can you? It's it's, it's this idea of infinitely different. And, And so why does God spell out that difference to us? Because I think we tend to project our ways and our thoughts onto God. That's the problem. It makes us assume that God is like us. We come at this idea of forgiveness with a transactional view. Did you hear that? A transactional view. If I do X, God will forgive me. Well, what is that X? What do we need to do to have God forgive us? Now, how would you fill in the blank with X? If I do blank, God will forgive me. Be careful with that question because I'm not suggesting you can work your way to heaven. I am actually using that question to illuminate how our minds think. We project our ways onto God. We tend towards this transactional mindset. If this, then that. X will get me Y. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's kind of our base thinking as humans. But God, God is different. The spirit... Let's be glad that we have the scriptures because they they school us and they recalibrate us. These verses give insight about who God is, not just what God does. The very deep heart of God is to pardon, to forgive, to have compassion. Dane Ortland says it's like his inner disposition. He has a heart desire to pardon the repentant and contrite sinner. That's what he actually wants to do. Of course, you may be asking, well, how does God's heart of compassion bolster and build my confidence in God today? How does that work in 2022? Well, I would submit to you it's this, how he provides his gracious and abundant pardon. It's the how, right? You see, God's heart of compassion is put on full display in the way, the means he secures a just and righteous pardon for your sins. He spares nothing, not even his son. You know this verse, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus' perfectly obedient life 
led to his obedient death on the cross. His death on the cross was so that your soul may live through faith in Christ. God's heart of compassion is manifested through Jesus. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might die to sin and we might lie, live to, to righteousness. That he might die to sin and that we might live in righteousness. You see, to do that though, you might be asking yourself, well, what do I need for that? What do you need to do according to verse 7 in chapter 55 of Isaiah? To do that, the wicked person must forsake his way. And the unrighteous man must forsake his thoughts. What is the way of the wicked? Well, let's just turn the spotlight on to Israel for a minute and we can get a few clues. False worship, hypocrisy, greed, cynicism, defiance, and ultimately rebellion against God. Well, what are an unrighteous man's thoughts? Well, maybe we'll take the spotlight and just put it on humanity. If we look at humanity, we get a bunch of clues. We are inherently tilted towards defiance. We are centered on self-promotion and self-glory and self-enthronement. We assume we can co-opt God onto our agenda. We assume that we can pretend he's not there and everything will be okay. There's no justice, no mercy, no humility within the thoughts and the ways of the wicked life. So when God says, come, seek me while I may be found, he is calling, he is calling the wicked and unrighteous to turn away from their self-sufficiency and self-enthronement and he is telling us to call on the name of Jesus, the only name under heaven by which a man or a woman can be saved. He is calling you to place your confidence in the life, death, resurrection of his son Jesus, the Savior. See, when you place your trust and faith in Christ, God's forgiveness, listen closely ladies and gentlemen, God's forgiveness is not half-hearted, it's not stingy, it's not begrudging, and it's not somehow incomplete. No, it's not tepid, it's not tingy, it's not timid and stingy. God will pardon abundantly. He will forgive copiously, profusely, lavishly, completely, indefinitely, and infinitely. And I'm running out of words because it's hard to describe. His forgiveness is like Niagara Falls, an overwhelming nonstop flood of compassionate mercy. This is confidence-inspiring if you are in Christ. When you embrace God's gracious, life-giving pardon through Christ, he removes the guilt, the stain, the tyranny, the power, and the punishment of your sin and your sins. Did you hear that? The tyranny, the power, and the punishment of your sins, even the guilt of your sins, he removes it. Remember what we read in Psalm 103? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love towards those who fear him, who have turned to him, Verse 12, and as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You just heard the words of infinity again. Did you catch that? The infinite space between east chasing west. That's how far you are separated from your transgressions and iniquities, iniquities when you are in Christ. 
The work of Christ is an absolute, objective reality. And when your faith is in Christ alone, the forgiveness of your sins is an absolute, objective reality. That's confidence-inspiring. So what I've just shared with you is the gospel, the good news of the gospel. By placing your faith in Christ, you can receive a full and eternal pardon, forgiveness for your sins. Now, folks, that's some good application for today. What if you already trust in Christ as your Savior? Are these verses relevant for you today? Well, yes, yes they are. Let's, let's mash them up with a few other verses. Do you remember the commands of Scripture telling us, be holy, for I am holy? That means to live life such that we reflect the very character of God. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer teaching us to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That means we are instructed to forgive as our Father in heaven has forgiven us. Beloved, God's abundant pardon for sinners like you and me is meant to spill over onto others. If God's forgiveness is like Niagara Falls, your life is expected to be a downstream runoff of compassion and forgiveness, a life of forgiving debts that are owed to you. It's inevitable that sitting here today, there are debts that are felt very deeply and clutched very tightly. Right in this room, there are people who hold grudges for real wounds and real offenses, waiting for the moment when they can come and collect their debt waiting on a sinner or an offender to come and pay up. There are wounds and grievances because of actual, real, hurtful sins perpetrated against you. There are also, let me be clear, perceived offenses, whether real or imaginary, is immaterial. They are felt and held and cherished. And inside, I'm just going to say this very bluntly, ladies and gentlemen, inside this room, there are kids and moms and dads and sisters and brothers and members of FCF who need to forgive one another. Brothers and sisters, these debts need to be forgiven by you out of the vast reservoir of God's compassionate heart. So I urge you, Christian, as you are conformed to the likeness of Christ, Place your confidence in God's heart of compassion. Trust in the redeeming work of Christ, meaning the forgiveness of your sins. But not only your sins, the sins of brothers and sisters sitting around you are also forgiven at the foot of the cross. So let the compassionate grace of God flow through you so that you can lay down these debts and hurts and grievances and offenses and place your confidence in the forgiving heart of God. He will help you forgive. That is the only way you will forgive is through his heart. So there you have it. Another magnificent reason to place your confidence in God. You know, God is more full of tender-hearted compassion and forgiveness than you and I could even begin to imagine. So do it. Place your confidence in God. And let us run forward in this text and look at another reason we can place our confidence in God. Because of his purposes. We can place our confidence in God because of his purposes. Read with me verses 10 and 11. 
For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Very interesting that the prophet Isaiah reveals to us what God says about his own words. Before the rain and the snow can evaporate and return to the clouds, they cause the seed to grow, the bread is made, the moisture brings all that up, and somebody can eat. That's the picture of God's word, right? Like moisture, God's word is infiltrating the nooks and the crannies and the soil that he wants it to invade. That's the picture of God's word, but but more importantly, notice what God's word does. God's word proceeds from him with a purpose. And that purpose belongs to him, ladies and gentlemen, not to you and not to me. It's right there in verse uh, verse 11. Can you see it? This is what God says about his word. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God has sent his word on a mission to accomplish his purposes. Now, what's amazing about this small chapter is how many of God's purposes are kind of snuck in here, embedded in here, hiding in here. For instance, we've already seen in this chapter that God accomplished his purpose in promising David a king on the throne forever. And that comes about through Jesus, the son of God, who assumes the authority that he has over all the universe and takes his rightful place on the throne. That's the first purpose we've seen. The second purpose we've seen is that by God's heart of compassion, he will forgive and pardon those who turn from their sin and turn with humility and put their faith in Christ. So as Christians, we we have every reason to place our full confidence in God because we have seen his faithfulness, his compassion, and now we're looking at his purposes that are accomplished by the power of his word. So let's not stop there. As we finish Isaiah 55, we're going to bump into two more purposes of God. And they're kind of cool, and we're going to move fast, and there's not enough time to explain them as much as we'd like to. Let's just be honest about that. Verse 12 says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, up shall come the cypress. Instead of the briar, up shall come the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You see, buried in these two little verses, two more purposes that God has declared he will accomplish. But you have to read closely and you have to work with the symbolism. Okay, so first... Stick with me. First, God speaks and promises a recovery, a restoration, a renewal. When salvation comes, the true and final glorious salvation, all of creation will rejoice. We see that in different verses in the Bible. It will be a reversal of the curse. It will be the undoing of sin and brokenness and fallenness. That's the picture that verses 12 and 13 are painting. And it's a glorious picture, a symbolic picture of what is yet to come. It evokes this image of the Garden of Eden, which was ruined and now restored. Where there was scorched earth and only thorns and briars and thistles could grow, now magnificent trees will flourish, blossom, and take over the landscape. That's the idea for Israel and the people of God. 
where Israel was decimated, exiled, and cut off, God will restore and renew. And he actually did that. You see, when the conquering nations came in, they leveled cities, they scorched them, so to speak, and nothing was growing there. No crops, no beautiful trees, just thorns and thistles and briars. But the picture is that they will be restored. And so eventually we know that God actually grabbed his people out of those nations and he brought them back some 70 years later and he restored them, he renewed them, he put them back in their land. And ladies and gentlemen, that is also true for God's people today. We live in a world that is bent, broken, and disfigured by sin. But, but God, but, but God has spoken, but But God has spoken and he has established a covenant and he has promised by the faithfulness of his own words and the power of his own words to come back and to restore and to renew. Hallelujah and amen. He will accomplish it by the power of his word. That is the first purpose buried in these two little verses, restoration and renewal. The second purpose, though, is found in verse 13, and I'm sure you noticed it, and it shall make a name for the Lord. It, it, referring back to the reversal of the curse, the renewing of creation, that will make a name for the Lord. See, this is part of God's cosmic purposes. These little verses don't unpack all of that, but here you have it. He will make a name for himself. Think about this. In the ancient days, a conquering king who went and conquered a big old nation, he would come along and he would make a monument for himself. He would make sure his name was on it, maybe his accomplishments were on it, as if to say, remember me. Remember my name. Remember how great I am and how powerful I was. A monument, maybe it was a piece of stone, an arch. Well, God does the same. He says he will erect a sign, a memorial, an everlasting sign for his name. And note that when God reveals something through his name, he is revealing something about himself. It's not just God's power and word that will be remembered and celebrated. It is God's faithful, compassionate character that will be remembered and celebrated and worshipped for eternity. So there it is, two small little verses where big purposes of God are revealed in a picture and a statement. The picture is this, he will bring captives out of captivity and lead them forth in peace. And when he finally does this at the end, it will be a glorious crowd, a huge mass of redeemed sinners who are brought together to show off to all of creation as if they were trophies of grace. And not just trophies. They are a monument. Get this. You saints gathered together at the end are an everlasting sign of God's magnificent faithfulness and his abundant pardon. Oh, and don't forget that that crowd of redeemed sinners gathered by King Jesus, they will clap and rejoice along with the rest of creation. Because God's purposes have been fulfilled and accomplished by the power of his word. Friends, today we have a glorious confidence in our glorious God. 
We have traveled a long way. We have flown over 13 short verses. You have been called to come and feast on the riches, to taste and see that God is good. You have been instructed to listen closely that your soul may live, that it may live through Jesus Christ. Israel, excuse me, Isaiah has shown us that God is infinitely trustworthy and we can place all our confidence in him. We have learned today that God is always faithful to his covenants. We know we can lean on him as he fulfills his promises in and through Christ our Savior. Isaiah also revealed for us a glimpse into the very inner heart and inner workings of God who is compassionate and forgiving. You can confidently trust in the work of Christ for a full pardon and complete redemption. We touched briefly on how God will, excuse me, briefly on how God is amazingly, infinitely different than us, especially in his forgiveness. And yet we also heard this call, that he calls us to be like him and to forgive others through the power of Christ in you, believer. We learned that when God speaks, his word will accomplish his purposes. We discovered that his purposes are long-range and redemptive. His purposes include a reversal of the curse and of sin. And his purposes, this is great and glorious news, will be consummated by a gathering of the saints and as an everlasting sign all for his glory and his fame. Let's pray together. And as I pray, I ask you to consider how has God spoken you today, urging you to place all of your confidence in him. Dear Heavenly Father, we come recognizing that Isaiah has much to show us about who you are, not just what you do, but who you are and how you will effectively accomplish your purposes. And so we worship you, Almighty God, for your faithfulness. We thank you for putting your heart on display by sending your own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might walk in fellowship with you, that we might be forgiven, that we might be pardoned, that we can have an eternal life in your glorious presence one day. We thank you and we praise you for the things that have been promised and are yet to come. Oh, Lord God, we love you. We worship and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.